All right. Welcome. Welcome, everybody. I'm super excited for this guest returning to the show. This is third or fourth time on the show. Either way, I'm always excited to talk to him. Um, so I won't keep you guys too long in this portion of the show. Make sure you hit all the links below to figure out what I got going on. Um, a Common Crown's like to be playing any shows till probably springtime. So make sure you go check out our music. In the meantime, we're going to have a new single here hopefully soon. I'm going to say probably next month. Um, hit up all the Tiger Fitness stuff. Unfortunately, if you guys are listening to this now, you missed the Black Friday sale, but I guarantee there will be a sale next month and some other time. The world's best electrolytes right behind me as well, LMNT. And um, without further ado, guys, let's rock and roll. What is up, everybody? My name is Kyle Matovic. I am the host of the In Liberty and Health podcast, where we talk all things liberty, health and wellness, and beyond. My hope is to encourage and spread the message of liberty and physical and mental well-being. I hope you enjoy all the topics we talk about with our guests. We're on all major streaming platforms, so please sit back, relax, and enjoy. Man, I'm doing as good as anyone can do getting buried by his 13-year-old son on leg day. <laughs> I'm not going to apologize for not being on this podcast because I got to go see Metallica. So if that's a problem, kiss my ass. Okay? Oh, yeah. <laughs> All right. Adam, pleased to have you. What's up, man? Been a uh, while. Yeah, it has. Uh, I would say probably too long. And I'm always delighted to talk to you. And uh, we we're talking a little bit off air about how your uh, little health journey. That's not necessarily the goal of the show tonight. But I want um, you to give a little bit of a testimonial, not for me, but for you, because this was all you. And uh, I, as I said before the show, I seriously could not be happier for you and all the progress you've made since last year. So uh, I guess let people know kind of how you've been doing and what's been going on with you. Yeah, I think the last time when we spoke, um, we spoke, I think was it or a couple months ago, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, I had been fluctuating between weight all throughout my years. And, um, I noticed last year I reached a, a peak of like 307 pounds. It was one day after my birthday. I remember going to hospital because I had a bad leg infection and I got home. I was really mad and I weighed myself and I was so pissed. I said, you know what? I'm just going to, you know, find a, uh, plan that works for me and diet plan whatnot about two months later we talked we spoke and i told you about i knew that you were into uh diets and exercise and whatnot so i figured shoot why not you know i don't care if he's younger than me maybe he's got advice i never heard of Mm -hmm. so you you know you talked about the extremes and i'm an extremist so like one i told you i remember i used to eat like eat a lot of bread and pasta and i would stop for like two months and then all of a sudden i get that itch and then I'd eat pasta and bread for like another month, losing everything that I lost in game. Told you about that problem. And then you told me about this happy medium of sorts where, you know, you don't have to go to extremes and you, you don't have to do this and this and that. He goes, find uh, a moderate amount of food for you to eat. Don't quit, but don't eat like don't eat at night. And I said, all right, you know what? I'm going to do that. And I remember that was probably around January, February, whatnot. Yeah. And I kept a, a, a note, a uh, little uh, pad of uh, weighing myself every two weeks. And I had it all the way from January, December, what dates to weigh myself. It was 307, December 28th of last year, uh, 255 currently. So uh, 52 down. And yeah. my goal was 240 at the end of the year. I've now extended it because I want to see 230. I haven't been under 260 in, Kyle, I probably 15 years. Mm-hmm. 
I'm six yeah. ten, so I'm really tall. So like when people used to see me at that way, like, oh, don't worry, you know, you'll you'll you you know, it doesn't show on you, but it it, it felt up I felt it here. Yeah. I felt it here. And I, I could I didn't like it. So I wanted to do something about it. I didn't do anything special. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I lift weights and you know, I exercise and whatnot. Well, all I did was eat right, and, you know, didn't cut out fat, like all cookies and carbs and whatnot. One cookie a day. Uh, I haven't eaten bread in months. That's one thing I'm proud of because uh, that was my Achilles heel. Pasta, I had it maybe three times this year. So extremes, eh, maybe here and there. But I didn't cut off everything. And it's working. So I found something that actually works, a niche that actually works. Yeah, that's that's absolutely incredible. And I'm really glad you could share that with everybody. Um, and it's interesting that you, you know, kind of were in the extremes, like we were saying before the show, like a lot of people, I think, find themselves in that where they think, oh, I have to do this. And like the buy in of that is very, very strong, because like when you cut out all carbs or all fats, the you know, you're cutting out a huge amount of calories from your daily, um, you know, energy intake. So you're going to drop weight dramatically, very, very fast. So you're going to think, oh, this works. But then the rebound comes when yeah. you just can't eat a fit back in. And like you said, hey, a cookie a day, a cookie a day will not hurt you. Now, if you're eating a whole box of them a day, yes, that's going to hurt. But it's just, just one, you're not hurting anybody. You're not hurting your progress. You understand your limit, and that's what matters. So um, I, I didn't want to spend too, too much time on that, but I just really wanted my audience to hear that because that is just, I, I couldn't be happier for you. And like we said, um, off air as well, Keith Knight and uh, Reed Coverdale both doing their own little health journey, and they both look absolutely fantastic and they both did a fantastic job on improving their own health and that's just you know it's always awesome to hear about people's success stories because i think we need more of that especially with the kind of stuff that we're going to cover tonight we just need to hear more about people's positive experiences because you know it's really us that matters and us that can make a change yeah for sure listen you know you deserve a lot of credit you deserve a lot of credit because your 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 advice actually helped me and um you know what if i hadn't spoken to you at that time maybe you know i wouldn't have been uh at this point where i am now so that's why i wanted to give you uh you know a lot of credit that you deserve thank so you. I, I i can't thank you enough really yeah no i i really really appreciate it so um perhaps on a more grim topics um i entitled the show today israel the middle east and the empire with uh, adam fitzgerald because i know this is a topic that you're um, very passionate and very very well informed on and uh it really seems like the whole world has changed in the last like two months where like we're in a completely different like zone now because i remember um october 7th happened and the next thing you know um you didn't hear anything about ukraine and like i pay pretty close attention to the stuff that's going on in like china to see what's you know how many warships are going through the south china sea and kind of all the military buildup surrounding china but like even that seemed to slow down and now what did everybody's eyes go straight to israel mm-hmm everybody's paying attention to the middle east again it's just like 2000 again and i think you and i were both probably well aware of this that uh you know the populist right who claimed to be so anti-war all of a sudden that went right out the window like no business and every it's like george bush all over again so um i guess what were your thoughts on a October 7th, when the fighting started breaking out, um, I, I just remember Kyle Anzalo and messaged me and a couple other guys in a group that we have. And he said, what the hell is going on in Gaza right now? And then the next day, you know, my feed was filled up with all sorts of stuff. So, yeah, what was October 7th like for you? And, you know, what was your interpretation at first? I can't say I was surprised, but I was surprised at the veracity of it right away. And it was very fast. Uh, that's what I was very most taken aback by at that point. 
and the amount of propaganda that I've seen. Now, I've seen it in Ukraine mostly, and so have you, and so have a couple of others, and specifically the Libertarian Institute, where they reported daily on it. And all of a sudden, where the concentration was uh, had been with Ukraine and Russia uh, for the last, what, two, two years, yeah. all of a sudden, this voracious attack by Hamas, which wasn't a surprise at all, and has a lot of similarities to the 9-11 attacks. We could talk about that, too. Mm -hmm. um, I saw right away uh, the amount of violence that basically assailed not just the Israelis um, in, uh, in southern Israel, but also with the Palestinians. It was almost an immediate re reaction. And that's what led me to believe that with the, uh, the response, which is what I've always looked for, when it comes to terrorist attacks anywhere in the world, what is the response? I was expecting a vicious response. Nothing to what I've seen with the Israeli government has done. I mean, this is just unprecedented levels now that actually replaced the largest humanitarian crisis in the world, which was in Yemen. Mm -hmm. um, I, I wouldn't have started doing daily updates video on Israel-Gaza I, I already saw the Libertarian Institute covering it. I said, well, that, that's enough. Everyone knows who they are. And they're the best in the country, in my opinion. Yeah. And when it comes to unbiased uh, uh, view, <laughs> I, I saw the, the propaganda right away. And this is coming from so-called leftist and right media, which there is no such thing when it comes to the bigger geopolitical issues. You know, they're, they're <laughs> basically aligned with one another, yes. especially with Israel. Yes. And, I started saying, you know what? I would like to see an unbalanced view. And so I started doing daily, like update videos. And I, I'm proud, you know, to say that, you know, I tried to be unbiased and un, uh, unprejudiced in my reporting, which is what you basically would like to see with, um, you know, with natural media in this country, um, right. national media, not natural media, but, you know, national media. But we don't have that, unfortunately. Right. And what do I have to do is I have to go outside of the United States to find reports about what's happening in Palestine because CNN and MSNBC and Fox News, well, they're not going to give you it. They're giving you a one-sided balanced view because they're exactly. actually interviewing, you know, uh, uh, you know, human rights, I mean, um, Israeli uh, rights reporters or their press and getting updates on a slanted one view. And I think that's unfair. Um, yeah. Even if you if we're just to say that, hey, they're telling the truth, but you're getting only one side. And I believe right. in getting both sides of the story. And so I started doing my own. And I don't have a well, nowhere near the following like Kyle Anzalone and Connor Freeman and Scott Orton. But I wanted to to do my part, at least just even if it's minuscule. But um, yeah, that's that's I, I was more surprised at the uh, veracity of the Israeli government. I shouldn't because. We've seen in past instances where Operation Cast Lead and previous operations that were reported by Amnesty International and Human Rights Reports, where they basically reported that, you know, a pal like a, a group like Hamas or the Palestinian Islamic Jihad would send over these makeshift rockets into right. places like Janine and kill maybe two people. And then the response would be that the Israeli military enters into like this refugee camp in Janine and starts destroying the entire refugee camp and saturates, uh, you know, Palestinian neighborhoods with millions of bullets and, right. you know, overkill and overkill. Mm -hmm. um, and as Saul Alinsky once said, the action is in the reaction. I think that's a great quote to use in this context. It's a great quote to use in most contexts, but here uh, more so. But uh, 
Yeah, the viciousness, which hasn't stopped, by the way. It's been yeah. gone through it since October 7th. I mean, we're almost into December now. It just hasn't stopped. Places that are basically, it, it looks like it was never a neighborhood. Never. Right. Almost like Hiroshima, Nakasai. No exaggeration. They just, no buildings, no foundation, nothing. Nothing is left. And I think now it's 1.7 million displaced. And it's just unbelievable imagination. Seven, I think it's, it's 13,000 dead approximately. And okay. 6,000 children and I wow. think 37,000 injured currently right now. Yeah, I mean, I've been keeping an eye on the numbers. Um, and I haven't paid attention recently, ever since like the holidays. My wife and I went down to Florida for our anniversary trip. And it feels like literally like I was one week behind. And I feel like I've missed so much. Because huh. when I left for vacation, um, I think we left on November 9th. Um, ever since then, it seems like the killing has slowed down a little bit, but I mean, still they, they plowed through 10,000 Palestinians in one month. Um, one thing that I noted there when you were talking is this, um, divide where people, it's interesting to see the alt media and I've talked about this on other podcasts, but, um, the alt media that props up that there's somehow like this giant left wing bias against Israel when really the only thing that there is, is these like college kids protesting. But like when it comes to the Biden administration, um, you know, Joe Biden has said that he has a deep personal connection with Israel. Um, Anthony Blinken was over there. Who's the worst diplomat on the face of the planet, but he was over there. Um, you know, cozying up to Netanyahu, the entire administration is all in lockstep with Israel. And then on top of that, um, I think it was just today, Mitch McConnell said that it's it would be absolutely ridiculous to condition our aid to Israel. So, I mean, just right there, it tells you that they're not worried about the casualties at this point. If we're trying, you know, if they're not worried about conditioning our support for Israel. Yes. And the, the, the Israeli lobby, the American Israeli Public Affairs Committee, APAC, as it's known, plays a huge part in this. And they have been for many decades. Uh, the FBI back in the 1950s uh were warned not to designate it as a foreign uh, entity, and they haven't been since uh, you know 70 years. Um, but nevertheless, um, when you have, I'm talking about not APAC back in the 50s, but the, the lobby that was growing underneath it. And I think the lobby started in 1980, the actual conference itself, 8081. Don't quote me on the year. But I, w I would say that the Israeli government, like Israel organizations, like a um, the um, Zionist Organization of America, which is the oldest, I think, of the organizations. Mm -hmm. um, you have J Street. You have um, the APAC conference, the APAC conference. All these play a part because what they do is they they get into like universities and corporations, and they it's almost like a polling. They're watching to see the influence of people and how they react to Israeli news, whether it's negative or positive. And what they do is any negative press, it's, it's automatically squashed. It's almost like a Scientology where they don't play defense, they play offense, and they attack, and they attack very aggressively. Israel does the same thing. The Israeli lobby makes it known that um, they mandatory have mandatory for both Democratic and Republican parties, anybody in Congress, to attend an APAC conference. That still goes on today. And that's been going on for the last 40 years, at least 40. And those who don't attend or don't uh, acknowledge the, uh, the Israeli lobby itself, well, you know, their career in Congress is basically um, uh, threatened almost like, they, you know, you're on a clock here. With that being said, this plays a huge part in what we're seeing in the government today. So the Biden administration, 
allegedly progressive in terms of domestic policy and uh, geopolitical policy. Well, there's nothing progressive here, is there? It's full on Zionist, full on nationalist yes. attitude. And you, there's no difference. It's, it's, the, it's not like the lines are blurred between Trump or Biden or anybody or, or DeSantis or Biden. No, there is no line. In fact, there's even RFK, RFK, for yes, that matter, right. which was very, very sad for me to see, because huh. um, he was one of the only good candidates, at least at first, that said, like, I do not want a war with China. And that's like my big thing, because mm -hmm. even over the last you know 30 years, that's been the neocons dreams. They kind of started laying this out like, look, we have to fight wars on terror so that way we don't have to fight great power struggles. OK, the, well, then what happened in 2012? Mm -hmm. They said it's time to pivot over to that. And then the top three countries were <laughs> China, Russia and Iran. And, you know, who does Iran threaten? Israel. And really, it's so funny that we're always gaslit about the um, Iranian nuclear program, but um, Israel has a nuclear program. And now at this point, I mean, it's it's clear as day, like the U.S. never recognized it. But now they're saying, like, we will nuke, you know, we'll nuke these countries next to us. And um, yeah, I mean, they're just kind of flying in the face of what, you know, all the other countries have to obey. I mean, every single other country in the world, to my understanding, that has nukes is under the nuclear proliferation treaties. But like they don't. Um, you know, Israel's the only one that doesn't have to sign up for that. I might be off in some of that, but I think um, most people probably caught what I was getting at. Yeah, they're the only country that doesn't allow for, like I said, the International Atomic Agency That's it. To, regulate, yes. to regulate the nuclear mm -hmm. arsenal of a country. The only country in, on the face of the earth. Now, we've had a whistleblower. Um, I'm sure some of the viewers in this room know and yourself may know, Mordecai Benunu, who basically tried to warn the world about the uh, illegal stockpiling of nuclear weapons under Elio Sharon, and he was automatically jailed, thrown in prison for years, and basically was released recently, and now he's in prison. I mean, they're just torturing this guy, basically, because all he did was tell the truth. Mm -hmm. um, yes, they're the only country that doesn't uh, seem to abide by the rules, so to speak, in regards to regulation of, of uh, their nuclear arsenal. It's, it's estimated that they have about 60 nuclear weapons at this point. Um, it's not definitively known. But if that's the case, let's say 50, 60, that would make them probably either fifth or, or fourth or fifth on the list in terms of what country has the most nuclear weapons outside the United States, uh, Russia, and I think Great Britain, I think. Uh, and I think they would have more than India and Pakistan. Well, well then, you know, uh, that's worrisome because you would figure that if so many Arab countries are at odds with Israel and it just seems that... Um, you know, they, they tend to make enemies. The government, I'm not talking about the people themselves. Right. So the government itself is basically making enemies headway with countries like Lib Lebanon, Syria, and Iran, uh, Jordan. And now they're trying to fracture the countries. And within, they just signed a deal with the Gulf and trying to better relations with uh, United Arab Emirates and Saudi Arabia. Palestine that was under the guise of, yeah, that was under the Abraham Accords. And that was supposed <laughs> to be Trump's peace deal in the Middle East, but basically it was, hey, we're going to pay you to ignore the atrocities to the Palestinians. So why don't you guys kiss and make up? And then, you know, we'll also put like a strip mall or something in Palestine. So that way, you know, everybody can shut up about this open air prison that everybody keeps talking about. And, you know, then, you know, there will be peace in the Middle East. But then, you know, underneath the surface was, you know, a very, very angry Hamas. And the problem is, is that that Hamas attack, and I'm sure you agree with this, is that, um, 
unfortunately, what they did did doom the Palestinians to a brutal fate because, I mean, what the Israelis will do in return to being humiliated like that on the world stage is absolutely unthinkable. And um, some of the other news that's kind of come out recently, and I'm curious your thoughts on this as well, is um, that there were actually tanks on the ground at the music festival and helicopters as well that were actually shelling to um, some of the cars. And what I heard, I was listening to Abby and Robbie Martin today, um abby had said that um 200 of the people or of the 1400 dead israelis were supposedly hamas fighters or at least that's what they claimed and that there was a police report that i read from haaretz which is an israeli news source that said um israel had killed or a um a helicopter pilot had killed i think it was around like 200 or 250 people um your thoughts on that and if i got anything wrong feel free to add or correct no i think you got the the premise correct is that now of course we're going on sporadic reports about what actually happened at the rave yeah. initially it was hamas and the military arm the Qassam brigades that actually parachuted in and started slaughtering the rave goers that were there i forgot the name of the town they were nearby it was a settler village um mm. also the, the people trying to escape there is video of uh, members of the Qassam brigades actually shooting at cars best way so in other words uh we have reports that israeli military were actually firing back they got there a little bit late mm. um and then started shooting toward even fleeing Israelis because um, they got them mixed up with with Hamas and whatnot. So the, I'm going to leave it at that because we don't know definitively what happened there. What we do know is that I think there was a mixture of both Hamas and the Israeli military, more so on Hamas' side, that actually slaughtered a lot of Israelis there. Um, this started the propaganda arm right here, right off the bat. Because yes. what I saw right away was basically a one-sided view of what happened at the rave. And then from there, we've been, we it's nonstop. Um, the Israeli media had got the jump. And it's almost like they expected this. And by the way, they did, because I even did an update video about um, the Israeli uh, IDF that were near the southern wall that actually months prior to the uh, raid on October 7th were warning their superiors about Hamas being at this wall, digging trenches, using even uh, trucks and jeeps to drive by the wall, basically start, you know, planting weapons at the wall. I mean, you know, you were like, well, what the hell? They were worried about something going happen here. And their superiors told them that, don't worry, we, they're just farmers. And that's what they were saying. And the, the warnings, the warning signs were there. So in, it, it leads, I can't prove it, but it leads me to believe that they wanted this attack to happen. And so that they can actually push out the Palestinians out of the largest uh, enclave in, in Gaza, which is the Gaza city, home of 1.1 million Palestinians, and, and drive them out forever. Because the ultimate goal for decades has always been by the Zionist government is to drive the Palestinians out of Israel into two states. One, the West Bank goes to Jordan, and uh, Gaza goes to Egypt. Now, not unreasonable speculation, because when you look at the Netanyahu cabinet today, it is the most racist, the most nationalist cabinet in Israel's history. And that's really saying something. Uh, When you consider Menachem Begin, Ariel Sharon, uh, Ehud Barak, and you take a look at these vampires. 
but mm-hmm. nothing compares to Netanyahu's cabinet. I mean, you got Israeli settlers in, you know, in part of his cabinet. The Israeli settlers are basically some of the most rabid bunch in the whole world. They, I liken them to the Islamic State of, of, of Israel, um, basically, that what they believe in is a caliphate for Israel and Israeli only. And if they have to kill men, women, or children, they admit so. In fact, one of the cabinet members is Ben Gavir. Ben mm-hmm. Gavir is a former settler. I think he's with the Human um, uh, Human Affairs Committee or something like Religious Affairs Committee, and basically went on record and, and says that the only way to peace is to kill every Palestinian known to mankind. And mm-hmm. when you have Defense Minister Yom Gallant, Ben Gavir, and I think you have another another settler, former settler uh, involved with the cabinet itself. I mean, you, wow, we're brewing trouble. And when you look at the uh, the future of the Likud party, that's the party that they're a part of. This, you know, they're the majority of the Knesset. The Knesset is what the U.S. House is like here, the capital. The Knesset is made up of different groups, religious groups like the Shahs and the Blue and White Party, which is like a progressive party, but not so progressive, you know, like the Democrats here. They share so much in common with the United States government. <laughs> and then you have this Likud party, this nationalist group. And what they're made up of, these young ones, are it's terrifying because when you look at uh, these Israeli settlers that are in the Likud party and you read the statements, they come, there's no holding back because they come out and say, we need to kill these people. I had never heard that with Ehud Barak. I never heard that with Menachem Begin. I never heard that with Ehud Sharon. And Sharon is probably one of the worst. Netanyahu's cabinet is, is the worst. It's the worst. So when you have that in your government, it's no wonder that what we're seeing today is a result of the actions of the government. And you wonder why so many tens of thousands last year, Kyle, took to the streets in Israel because they know, they saw that Netanyahu, this guy was under three different types of corruption charges, and he still won a sixth unprecedented term as prime minister. He shouldn't have won at all. And they saw his cabinet. They said, no way, we're, going, we're in the streets. So when, you know, I know that there are anti-Semites. I call them anti-Jews. I don't even call them anti-Semites. People, you know, I won't name names, but they'll come right out and say, we need to, you know, deplatform Israel. I know where they're coming from, but I'm playing on a level playing field. I like to think so and say, look, there's a difference between the people and the government. Well, that's the same here in the United States. They don't represent us and they don't represent the, the, the Israelis in the streets. And um, you can't blame for what the government is doing. You just can't. Exactly. And that's one thing that um, is very, very frustrating about this conversation in particular, because I can't tell you how many times I've been called an anti-Semite. And like, I may make jokes every here and there, but like, to be completely honest with you, the biggest victims in this whole situation are the Israeli citizens and then the Palestinian citizens. Like, it's not the governments. The governments, well, government... Because you can't really call the Palestinian state a state or a government necessarily. But, um, you know, the Israeli citizens didn't ask for this. I mean, this is what, Benjamin Netanyahu's fifth term or something like that? Yeah. So, I I mean, all these crimes can be hung directly around his neck. And it really makes me happy to see that um, Scott Horton and um, Connor Freeman had wrote that article detailing out everything about Netanyahu and um, Dave Smith sharing it a whole ton. And then all the other great libertarians have been sharing it a whole ton. So um, it's really cool to see that. But I mean, really, this whole situation should be absolutely hung around Benjamin Netanyahu's neck for the fact that he propped up Hamas intentionally, explicitly so over, you know, the last couple decades. 
And then now, you know, when he had intel from not only the IDF, but also Egypt and other countries surrounding, um, for him to just ignore that something was coming and then letting, you know, at least 1,200 of his people die. I mean, that is an absolute crime that should be hung around his neck and he should face, you know, he should stay in a walled prison for the rest of his life. And that's not the conversation that we're having. The conversation that we're having is, well, okay, well, what was the first story? Four to beheaded babies. And then, mm-hmm. um, you know, they put a baby in an oven, like straight up just ridiculous propaganda that wasn't true on its face at all. But, you know, we're having to, you know, choose between, well, either you're a, uh, you know, you're with the terrorists or you're with Israel, which is just this ridiculous binary where you can criticize Hamas and the actions they did on October 7th, which the people who killed people in Israel, the Hamas terrorists, if you will, that killed people in Israel should absolutely be held to account. But on the same token, the IDF soldiers that killed Israelis and Palestinians and Benjamin Netanyahu should all be held to account too. That's the truth of it. Yeah, and I can't, I, I couldn't put it better, Kyle. I mean, I really couldn't. Anyway, the comparison between 9-11 and Israel today, like I, I said yeah, before, comes in the summer of 2001 when you had countries like even Israel and Saudi Arabia, believe it or not, giving vague warnings that something big was going to happen. Meanwhile, what we didn't know at the time was that we already had Israelis and Saudis in the ground monitoring uh, the FBI, the DA, and and the 9-11 hijacks, living next door to them, even assisting them at some times. Um, So what did they collect, right? What what specifics? The only thing we're missing here are the specifics of what they collected. Well, we don't know. Now, on top of that, you had the CIA and the NSA basically monitoring al-Qaeda for years, even year, many years prior. And I'm trying to do videos and read uh, documents and files in a series platform to show you what exactly, what type of monitoring system that the NSA, just the domestic intelligence services were running, uh, as well as foreign intelligence. So now what did the Israelis know, right? I mean, you brought up the mention of Egypt that, that gave out the pre-warnings about something big was going to happen, much like with 9-11. Well, I mean, Israel now, I mean, well, there was a report by the Jerusalem Post and Betzalem that basically said, because they've interviewed the soldiers at the IDF on that wall, they basically said, well, what, what happened? And they said, well, we reported to our superiors months in advance that we saw a suspicious activity at the southern border, uh, right by the gate. And we basically reported to our superiors that something was going on and we were dismissed. And even though um, one woman who actually survived the attack, uh, her entire contingent, this unit, basically was slaughtered because she was the only one awake in the morning when they attacked. And they, the, the Hamas operatives came in and they killed everybody that was sleeping. She managed to escape. She tried to wake them up in time, but there was no time. She, they, they, they were already underneath the, uh, the gate and whatnot. They were driving right through, and there was really no time. Uh, she managed to escape and lived, and she reported this. And she says that she basically lives with survivor's guilt, but more so what's horrifying for her and it's just unforgiving is that her warnings were ignored. And I've reported this uh, on my one of my update videos because I thought that was really important. I saw the similarities between 9-11 and Israel, the October 7th attack. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, is there a lot of blame? Like you said, yes. And it starts with the very own government because they had to have known. I mean, this intelligence reports about what was going on. You think it stopped at some general with the IDF? No, it went right to the top. Because that's where decisions are made. All decisions are made. And so somebody's got to take the fall here. And something tells me that, yeah, with Israel, it goes like this. Whenever there's a huge and big attack, usually the prime minister usually gets axed. He's gone. 
But what's going to come after him is much worse because right. probably what's going to come after him is Yon Gallant, who's uh, the defense minister of Israel, or maybe somebody in the Likud party that I don't know yet uh, that is a former Israeli settler. Who knows? But if that's the case, you're going to want for the days of Netanyahu to, to return because what's going to come next is much worse, much worse. Yeah, and that's something that I think could be kind of noted throughout U.S. and seemingly Israeli foreign policy is that um, whenever you topple a dictator, you shouldn't always assume that's what what's going to come next is going to be good. Um, because, you know, in many situations, it's going to be worse. And like you said, um, a lot of Benjamin Netanyahu's cabinet is, I mean, even the doctors in the hospitals in Israel are calling for pretty much the flattening of Gaza. And um, maybe that's another thing that we could dig into a little bit. I'm sure you've read up on it. Um, when I was on Misty Winston's show, a mutual friend of ours, um, they had bombed a maternity, or Israel had bombed a maternity ward. I mean, clearly this has been no threat, but what is the talking point been the entire time? It's that, oh, Hamas is using these people as human shields. But, um, you know, Dave Smith had made a good comparison of this, and it's it really stuck with me. Like, if someone here, like if, a, let's say, a burglar or something like that went to an elementary school, and then our government said um, – you know, we're just going to drop a bomb on the elementary school to take care of this burglar. Everybody in their right mind would look at you and say, you're absolutely insane. How could you possibly think of doing that? But for some reason, when it comes to Palestinians and hospitals in Gaza, we just say, oh, well, human shields, we have to do that. Mm -hmm. That's the talking point. So it really seems like Israel has waged a war on hospitals in Gaza. And, um, you know, this has been an ongoing thing. There was the Al-Shifa hospital, mm -hmm. um, the hospital bombing that is still kind of ambiguous as of last month. And um, I think there have been a few others, but the maternity ward and then now even like cancer patients can't seek treatment in um, Gaza because they shut down that last hospital. You would be correct. And this is a very disconcerting uh, item within this conflict. There are many, but this is one of the most egregious. Now, I have read the Amnesty report, uh, international reports about past uh, operations run by the Israeli military, such as the Operation Pillar of Defense in 2012, uh, Operation Breaking Dawn, which was, um, uh, I want to say, just uh, last year, um, Operation Cast Lead. Uh, the Godzilla flotilla raid of 2010 that we talked about, uh, 2000 uh, list of, you know, there, there's a couple of operations that where they basically make no distinction between, say, um, uh, a school or a building. And what they do is the International Red Cross uh, basically will, and the International, um, the IRC or something like that, I want to say, um, in, I forgot the name of it. Forgive me, but there are there's a human rights group that basically used the Shatila Hospital, for example, and what happened? The International Relief Relief Workers, that's them, IRW, and no org, no foreign organization on the face of it has suffered more casualties than the International Relief Workers Organization, and they've lost dozens and dozens of people in the last just the last ten years. The operations I listed, just the last ten years. And they they basically what they'll do is they'll go in the hospital and they'll say, listen, this is a Hamas. There's a Hamas basement 
underneath this hospital. What they'll do is what we saw in this conflict, they'll they'll have like these cartoon drawings and they'll basically show you this elaborate structure underneath. What does that remind you of? Colin Powell at the United Nations Security Council <laughs> in 2003 with the bottle mm-hmm. of anthrax, you know, these cartoon pictures of these mm-hmm. elaborate um, valleys and buildings underneath. There was no such thing. Just like there's no such thing as a Hamas uh, building underneath these big elaborate. Yeah, there's tunnels, but they're crappy makeshift nothings that basically, you know, doesn't serve anything. But like these these big elaborate places are basically were built by the Israeli military back in the, the early 2000s. And what they wanted to do was basically build up these tunnels underneath these hospitals so that when there was an attack, the Israeli military can go into these tunnels and basically go from hospital to hospital to bring the wounded in for the Israeli soldiers so that they could bring in and, you know, they don't have to go out and be attacked by, you know, a Palestinian Islamic Jihad group or Hamas, for example, or Hezbollah in, in the West Bank. So what that's what these tunnels were about. But they'll have you believe that these tunnels are elaborate. They have air conditioners and, you know, sewer systems. (laughs) It's just like it's ridiculous. So they'll flatten the whole hospital. Now, recently, uh, there was another hospital in Gaza that uh, had incubated babies that were because the electricity was pulled. The doctors in that hospital stood and they were told for a last point that they were going to be airstriked. They left and they left the babies behind. Now, they didn't strike the building. They lied. And when the reporters went in, like Associate Press and NPR, they took pictures of all the deceased and decaying babies that were there because they didn't receive the treatment. There was dozens of them. And I said, boy, you know, it's going to come back and bite them. Because mm-hmm. what this shows is the, the, the just the sheer apathy of the Israeli government and the Israeli and military. And by extension, this will hurt, like you said. This will cause a great disregard for the people of Israel because that's what's going to happen. They'll generalize and say, you know, this country doesn't care about human rights. You know, they 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 slaughter human rights workers, they kill babies, they kill women and children. And yes, they do. The Israeli military does, but the people don't. You know, it's not their fault. But um, the hospitals itself, uh, in 2009, Operation Castlet, I think it's 2009, I read the Amnesty International report and they reported that six or seven hospitals were specifically targeted on purpose. That means that they were they were using precision bombs from the Israeli Air Force, specifically knowing that there were hospitals. Now that's a, that's, a, that's a crime under international law. I read the law very carefully, and I make it a big a big point in almost every video because I feel that people don't know about international law, and right. what this does is to show that yes, they're breaking not just their own moral law. But they're breaking international law, human rights law. Here's the catch, Kyle. Israel is one of only six countries on the face of the earth that are not co-signers of what is known as the Rome Statute, mm-hmm. the four laws under the international criminal courts. The other right. countries are the United States, North Korea, Iraq, and two very small, like uh, very uh, like African uh, countries. They're very small. But um, yeah, that that's who's not co-signed. Now you wonder why, you know, the, between Israel and the United States, who causes more uh, human rights abuses in the world? Well, they do. North Korea does. Iraq used to. But right. yeah, that that's who. And that's why they're not co-signed. They can do whatever they want with impunity. But here's the thing: the Palestinians in 2011 were designated as non-state actors because they're not a state, like you said, rightfully right. so. 
They're, but they were considered protected by the International Criminal Courts starting in 2012. So from 2012 on, any crime by the Israeli military can be investigated by the International Criminal Courts. Here's the thing. Does the government, will the government basically open up the books and say, all right, let's put them on before the court? Of course not. They're not going to sho uh, shove their military into uh, the international theater, and they're not going to be prosecuted for anything because they're continuing to break international crimes and laws. And the four laws are war crimes, uh, crimes of aggression, crimes against humanity, and war crimes. Mm -hmm. And the outlines are when you bomb a hospital, you are committing a war crime, a crime against humanity, a crime of aggression, and war crimes. It fits all three of the four definitions. If we count the amount of war crimes that were happening of the Israeli government in just the last two months, I don't know how many laws they broke. Dozens. It would be dozens because they not just bomb hospitals, they bomb schools, which are protected, um, civilians, children, all protect, relief, relief workers, all protected under the international criminal courts. But the Israeli military breaks uh, every uh, uh, law possible. Yeah, kind of continuing down that line, um, it was the murder of Shireen Abu Ekla, I think her name was. Um, that was about two years ago where she was wearing a press vest. But I mean, the Israeli Defense Force has a history of doing this. I believe over the last 20 years, they killed about one journalist per year. And now what they've been saying is that all the um, all the news agents and the people who work for news companies are interlinked with Hamas. I read an article that said that, I mean, they basically like completely implicated these news organizations with Hamas, which is absolutely ridiculous because what media is out there towing a Palestinian side yeah. and not that I'm necessarily like pro Palestinian. I think these people have, you know, every right to defend themselves in the same way. And they have a right to a home And Israel in my mind only has the right to exist insofar as they negotiate for the land. And then, you know, live peacefully next to the Palestinians. That's where it is in my mind, and that's the way it should be, but obviously we don't live in that world. Um, but it's just absolutely insane to me that like, there's even this idea that there's like some powerful faction that's pro-Palestine or like for the Palestinian people, but you know, just um, aid workers or journalists that are you know not completely toned the Israeli line, um, now all of a sudden they're completely implicated as being Hamas terrorists. It's truly amazing to see how they twist the narrative on these kind of things and it never ends i mean you would think that history started on october 7th and there's a reason right. why hamas now look i'm not advocating what hamas did and yeah. um i've reported ad nauseum about the threat of international arab organizations terrorist organizations like al-qaeda um uh islamic state and the levant uh, Abu Sayyaf and you know groups like this. Hamas is not an international threat. Hamas is basically spawned out of a reaction, a response, right. and that is a Israeli Zionist aggression toward Palestinians. And it didn't start on October seventh. This is basically coming from decades and decades of oppressive abuse, uh, land stealing, uh, basically uh, destroying. Uh, schools and hospitals and entire neighborhoods and replacing them with Israeli uh, settlements, uh, which basically, again, goes under the uh, the abuse of international law, as well as the International Criminal Courts law, these Rome statutes. Um, and, but they don't care. It's like they, they, they act without impunity. Right. And what this basically does is that what they're the ultimate goal is basically to have 
Israel is Israeli owned, Israeli state owned by Jews, and they don't want Palestinians in the way. What they want is basically to uh, have Gaza City free of Palestinians. And now it's extending to the West Bank because the ultimate aim is for Israel is basically to, if we believe the, the Talmudic uh, faith, is that what they, they want is basically all the Jews to return back to the land of Israel. And when this happens, the third temple is built. And when the third temple is built, it brings about the, the, the arrival of the Mashiach. And the Talmudic rabbis will have you believe that when they die, the ultimate aim of the ever after is to live in paradise with 500 Gentile slaves. And I think that's, you know, very primitive way of human thinking. But when you have people like this in positions of power and right. they have power, some sort of power in Israeli government, it makes you start to worry because these are the people that can't wait to die. Much like Christian evangelicals, who by extension are Zionists, Christian evangelicals will have you believe that if we take the, the Bible literally, which you're not supposed to, in the book of Revelations, that they believe that the final war, the Battle of Megiddo, will have all the armies of the world clashing at Megiddo in Israel, Jerusalem. When this happens, the return of Christ comes and he slaughters everybody that isn't Jewish. And basically what happens is all the Jews in the world will be destroyed because Christ made an empire of Christians and those who adhere to Jesus Christ, you know, the son, the son of man. Well, the Jews don't believe in Christ. They actually condemn him. Uh, and so the Christians have their faith. The Jews have their faith. And somewhere in the middle are the Muslims. And they think that the Muslims' faith is the craziest one of all because they go and martyrdom themselves. Meanwhile, they're not even the remotely religious. And if you take a look at the statements of past terrorists like Osama bin Laden or Ramzi Youssef, I, that's one statement I like to use. Ramzi Youssef, let's use him for the example. Ramzi Youssef is the a, uh, the bomber of the first World Trade Center in 1993. Before he was sentenced, he actually was given an hour's time to explain um, to the judge uh, what he's about, why he did what he did. And he explained quite clearly why he did. Was it because women in this country wear short dresses? Or is it because we live with Jews and practice faiths openly? No, had nothing to do with religion. Had everything to do about U.S. foreign policy. That's what made them drive to do what they do. And I don't advocate what they did. What Ramzi mm -hmm. Yusuf did is abhorrent. He's a murderer, mass murderer. Right. He's a terrorist. But you have to understand why they're doing it. Because if you don't right. understand why they're doing it, we're never going to understand why they're doing it in the future or right now. And if you have a public that looks at them and says, wait a minute, our foreign policy is making him do this? Well, let's take a look at our foreign. And that's what the government doesn't want. Because then they solve the problem. The problem is not that Ramzi Youssef himself, it's what he's doing. And when you look at what Osama bin Laden was doing and Muhammad Atta was doing and Ramzi Youssef was doing and Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi or Abu Musab al-Zarqawi, the leaders of Islamic State, and why they do what they did. And when you look at U.S. foreign policy and you look at Israeli foreign policy and Great Britain and stuff like this, and then you start wondering, wow, the bigger picture starts to get a little bit more fuller. And then you understand, hey, wait a minute. We're actually destroying Middle East countries on the basis of who? The United States and Israel right. and the Gulf. That's Saudi Arabia by extension. Yeah. Why is that? Well, it's politically oriented and religiously oriented. And when you understand that much, 
you start to make the corrections. Hey, wait a minute, we can't be we can't be doing this. And when you have a lot of people basically behind an idea, it makes them a threat. So what do they do? Well, they can divide you. There's a Democrat and Republican Party. And by the way, they both have differing opinions about what is going on. And basically, uh, when it comes to the bigger issues of like Israel, all of a sudden, the lines get blurred. They're the same. And all of a sudden, now you're left fighting with each other. Oh, wait, but we got to do this. No, we got to do that. The Zionists want this. The Christians want this. And all of a sudden, it becomes a mess. You lose the perspective. And the perspective is this. We need more hegemony in the Middle East. And we need to make the corrections right now possible without vote and, uh, you know, vote outside of the Democrat Republican Party. The problem is, who do we get in the libertarian atmosphere? We don't have enough and we need more people involved and we need a, a third party, at least a threatening third party, at least. And, you know, you bring up the issue of Robert Fitzgerald Kennedy Jr. and Vivek Ramaswamy is another one. And Tulsi mm-hmm. Gabbard, when you look at their foreign policy, it's like right. there is no difference between these guys and Biden or DeSantis. And we're screwed. Oh, I might as well vote for the winner. Well, guess what? Now you're voting, uh, you know, for the loser. The old loser is you. And the ultimate loser yeah. are the ones who are suffering in the Middle East. Absolutely. Um, the one thing that went around, I'm glad you brought it up, was uh, Osama bin Laden in his letter. That kind of went viral. And mm. one of the most frustrating things is to see the knee-jerk reactions of a lot of people kind of on the right of saying, oh, you know, this is ridiculous. He was a terrorist. He was a slaughterer. You know, he was a murderer. Fair enough. And oh, all the leftists are saying he's right. Well, this is the problem that a lot of like right wingers are running into right now. If you're just immediately contrary to whatever the left does, you miss a whole ton of nuance that is very, very important. Um, The main thing of Osama bin Laden's letter was we hate you for propping up dictators and slaughtering the Palestinians. I mean, I don't think they could have made it much more clear in the letter. It's been a while since I've read it, but like, I think that was probably the bulk of it. And, you know, was there some stuff in there that was like, okay, well, this is unreasonable from our perspective. Absolutely. But like, if you just look at the fact of what we've done over there for decades and decades and decades, you get a pretty clear picture of like, oh, they have every right to be pissed off. And, you know, same deal as if China came over here and started dropping bombs on major cities and, you know, slaughtering people in small towns and colonizing different areas, which they're not doing, no matter what people want to say. I did a whole podcast debunking the whole China's buying all the farmland. It's ridiculous. But if, um, if they were doing that, then we would, you know, shout things in the name of Jesus Christ and go over there and want to kill ourselves to, you know, get back at the Chinese. That's the exact thing that's happening. And it's the exact point that Osama bin Laden was making is, hey, you kill us, we're going to get back. Is it wrong to kill other people? Absolutely. But we should absolutely learn why they're doing what they're doing. Yes. And, you know, I saw this too, the viral letter of, of Osama bin Laden. I said, well, well, you know, that letter has been around for decades. I mean, over you know, 20 years. The thing is, is like I said, you know, we have to listen to some of these people. Why, why are they, why are they doing what they're doing? And the letter actually is like you said, is pretty straightforward. One thing about Arab fundamentalists I've known in my studies of, of criminal psychology is that unlike La Cosa Nostra, the Italian mafia, or say serial killers like Jeffrey Dahmer or, or John Wayne Gacy um, or the Mexican cartels. One thing about Arab fundamentalists, what they'll do, unlike them, is they'll tell you exactly why they're doing it, what they're doing. Serial mm-hmm. killers won't tell you because they hold that last bastion of power. You know, they won't tell the police why they did it. They'll tell you how they did it. They'll tell you where the bodies are buried, but they'll never tell you why. 
hardly they ever will. And that is, you know, that narcissism in them where they hold that, you know, the, the position of power because the parents always want to know why the the ultimate question of why mm-hmm. Arab fundamentals will tell you why. And that's the first and foremost. And they'll tell you even before they attack. Bin Laden did this before he bombed the embassies. For example, he sat behind a, a, a map of the African continent and he bombed the uh, U.S. embassies in, in Kenya and Tanzania. And he, you know, he did this in front of a televised audience with John John Miller of ABC News. Uh, what what this basically tells you is that our intentions are nefarious. Bin Laden once said in 2002 in an interview with uh, Al Jazeera, Taysir Alawani, he basically said that if the United States considers me a terrorist, he goes, well, they have to look in the mirror because I'm basically just doing what the United States is doing to me. And what they're doing to the Palestinians and what they're doing to the Middle East and what they did in the Gulf War in 1990 and where 500,000 men, women, and children were killed in the oil for food program, for example. And the United States basically will fumble out of their words like Madeleine Albright, the former secretary of state under the Clinton administration, where she told Leslie Stahl. Uh, the price was worth it. Yeah, the price was worth it. You know, was Leslie Stahl, for the, for the audience that doesn't know, Leslie Stahl asks Madeleine Albright, over 500,000 people were killed in Iraq in 1990. Um, do you think that the price was worth it? And Madeleine Albright basically said verbatim, I think this is a hard decision, but we think the price was worth it. Now, what does that tell you? Mm-hmm. Yes, they'll kill men, women, and children. And this right. is no, there's no mix-up for this. That was a direct answer. Yes, yes, we think the price was worth it. Well, golly gee, I think the only response would be, all right, where do we get the, the terrorist attack next? Well, bin Laden waits. And one thing about bin Laden was he's very patient, man, very quiet, man, demurred. And basically, he'll attack when the time is right. And there's a plan. There's always an outline. Um, and so basically, he attacked. And then all of a sudden, you know, the Americans are surprised. well, why are we being attacked? What do we do? Well, then, if you take a look at the letter what bin Laden wrote in that letter, he basically tells you why. You know, why? Why Why did you bomb Iraq in 1990? Why was it that men, women, and children were killed under the oil for food program? Why was it that um, you used uh, illegal sarin gas in, uh, against Iraqis or allowed for it to happen by the Ira- by uh, Iranians? Uh, when the Iran-Iraq war happened in 1980, it was basically ignored by the Reagan administration. You know, there was a, there's a time and a place for everything, and there's always going to be a consequence for these actions. And when, when the consequence comes, the United States acts like an old and says, but what do we do wrong? What do we do wrong? Well, take a look. And you all you have to do is read, read the testimonies of these people. They're telling you why. And they're not mixing it, they're not giving vague senses here, they're not alluding to anything. They're right. being very direct. Your foreign policy is doing this. And because you voted for these people, you're guilty. Now, of course, this is not the right way to talk, you know, to to conduct it. But what are, what are they going to do? What are Arabs going to do in response to being, you know, a waged war on, even though it's not a declared war, but basically is. It's a war against the, the uh, Arab population in the Middle East. And what are they to do? What do you, what do you expect was going to happen? Well, uh, a thing like 9-11 happens. And the thing is, the more nefarious structure about all this, about all terrorist attacks, is that the intelligence comes in telling them that, hey, we got intelligence that an attack is coming. Are there stricter security measures made? No, never is, because the action is in the reaction. Exactly. And that's the one thing I can't prove, is that they knew the attacks were going to happen, and they responded in kind. 
Now, I can't tell you that the United States government knew exactly that 9-11 was going to happen. I don't know what was said in those phone calls when they were listening to the Yemen hub in Yemen, which was an Al-Qaeda communications hub, or when they were tapping Bin Laden satellite phones in the 1990s. But I can tell you this, just use your head. What do you think they're talking about in those phones? These are serious men in Al-Qaeda. They're not right. talking about, you know, everyday mundane things Americans talk about. They're talking about serious operations. And so I can only allude to the fact that I think they knew. And they responded in the response in kind because we over-responded. Just like the Israeli government over-responds when there's a Hamas homemade rocket shot into an Israeli settlement project. So right, that right. they can saturate and destroy everything uh, in, in in Gaza, for example, yeah, or the West Bank. And just going by the numbers that we have now, I mean, Israel has committed 10 times the casualties mm. that um, Hamas has committed on Israel. Um, so I guess one last thing that we could probably uh, tie up for this whole thing. A lot of people are bringing up World War Three, saying that this could escalate into World War Three, And I understand kind of the waving of the hands here. Um, I'll give my quick opinion on it, and I think you were probably much, 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 much more knowledgeable than I am in this respect, um, because I'm not very, very familiar with Lebanon and Hezbollah. But um, I think a lot of people are concerned that um, a wider war could break out because Israel has been bombing the Syrian airports, mm -hmm. um, the one in Aleppo where it's now no longer operational. And um, they've been saying that, hey, we're going to go into Lebanon and we want to take that, you know, that ground back. I can't remember the exact uh, name of the city. If, if i heard it, i would know it but um i know they've been kind of wanting to pick a fight there and then obviously the implication is and we saw this on october 7th is that this is all iranian backed right and then hezbollah is iranian backed so you know it's kind of saber rattling with hezbollah lebanon and then also saber rattling with iran and then i think the fear here is that um because iran is part of BRICS, that russia is going to hop in but i really don't think that follows because um russia hasn't had quite as easy of a time as i think mm -hmm. a lot of people were going to think with ukraine and they're probably still a little bit bogged down although i think that russia's probably making out a little bit better than ukraine i don't think that they want to get bogged down in the middle east with a war for iran like i don't think they're that invested in iran that they're going to go fight a war <laughs> against the us and israel over um you know hezbollah versus the idf like i i that doesn't logically follow to me so maybe you would have a little bit more of a different opinion or maybe you might you know have something that i'm missing here but uh, what are your thoughts I want to say that was the city Hebron in Lebanon or Damascus in Syria? Dem uh, no, 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 no. Um, Sierra Azor. No, no, no. I, Aleppo. I, no, I know that's the Aleppo airport, but there was a certain uh, city Beirut. 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 Okay. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. 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 Well, your concern was my concern initially was that this mm -hmm. would would widen into a wider regional war, yeah. which is exactly what the Israeli government wanted. And when I saw that the uh, Lloyd Austin, defense minister for the United States, basically send ships to the Mediterranean, I was like, they're not there for Hamas. They're there for Hezbollah because they pose a bigger threat to uh, Israel. Than, and that's when the United States steps in. And that's exactly what I thought the, the ultimate end. The end game was that Iran, Syria, and Lebanon were attacked. The Israel and the United States would get involved right away. And this would precipitate World War III. It would precipitate World War III. Now, here's the thing, was that, uh Russia or China would get involved because they are have they have an open relationship with Iran. Russia not so much now because they have their own problems in Ukraine. Mm -hmm. 
And that is just like Afghanistan, 1979, all over again. They'll have a 10-year war, uh, basically trying to slowly get out of this conflict. I don't think they can afford to right. engage with with this conflict. So I, exactly, I, I yeah. think it's safe to say they're not going to be involved. However, what could happen? And it's not off the table just yet because we are not out of the woods. We could see this excitement. Now, I'm waiting to see because now it's not Gaza anymore. Now it's West Bank. And this is much more worrisome because I think with because Hezbollah is based in West Bank. If Hezbollah gets involved heavily, more heavily involved, this will precipitate a response by the United States government. When that happens, it's all better off. That means Syria and that means Iran will definitely become the primary objectives because it's always been the objective of the Israelis for the United States to intervene and go to war with Iran because mm -hmm. Israel and Iran have the longest uh, adversarial conflict of all, and Israel considers Iran the biggest enemy, the most yes. threatening enemy of all. And mm -hmm. guess what? Not just to Israel, but also to Saudi Arabia because of ideological differences. Iran is Shia, and Saudi Arabia is Sunni. Mm -hmm. So with that being said, um, like I said, this is not out of the woods area yet. I'm, we're still waiting the, 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 the patient game here. Let's see what Hezbollah does. Will they engage? Well, remember when Hassan Nasrallah, the leader of Hezbollah, went before the stage just, I think, a week and a half ago and basically alluded to the fact that we are engaging the Israeli military, but he didn't say in full sentence we're at war. He basically is at war, but he didn't come right out and say it. He's wise enough. Yeah. Nasrallah is very shrewd. So let's see what Israeli does. I, I, I know there's part of his Israeli government under the, uh, the blue and white part that basically, you know, we're going to really stretch it then if we engage with Hezbollah. And they remember back in 2006 with the Lebanon-Israeli war where they lost, the mm -hmm. IDF lost to, to Hezbollah. So unless the United States basically, and they can't afford it, the United States, listen, no matter how strongly of an ally they are in Israel, they know that this will become a full-fledged war. Do you think the the American government can afford it this time, especially with the, uh, the, the, the divide of the White House engaging with Iran at this point? I don't think so. Biden is old. He really can't take it. I think they're going to wait. I think this conflict, let's see. The conflict, you know, lasts another 12 months. Let's see what the response is. And if a younger president becomes involved, if you get someone like DeSantis, I'm going to say with conviction mm -hmm. that this will become a World War III type situation okay. because DeSantis is a full-fledged APAC supporter. He'll do whatever it takes. And now, he's Biden's a, too. yeah. Biden yeah. is too, but he's older. He can't take it. He's, you know, he's uh, okay. 83, I think, at this point. He's the okay. oldest president in history. Yeah, I, I, th I think this is one area where perhaps I'm a little bit less... Uh, where I was shaky, but as you spoke a little bit more, I think I kind of came to agree with you. Um, Biden had said about the Iran deal, which was the one good thing that Obama did was, you know, help lift sanctions off Iran, help normalize with them was with the Iran deal. Um, Biden had pretty much said that, hey, the Iran deal is dead, but we just can't say it's dead to basically save face. And they've started to give them some of the money back that we stole no matter what anybody wants to say. And then even like some of that money, uh, Cutter denied giving them the $6 billion. And then I think there was supposed to be another 10 billion that went there, but I don't know if that fully went through. I haven't kept up too, too close with this, but um, you know, this idea that we're funding Iran is just absolutely ridiculous because Biden has done a lot to ramp up tensions with Iran, you know, putting sanctions on them. And now this whole war with Israel where, you know, basically they're pointing the finger in Iran's face. Um, 
Yeah, and as far as like China and Russia would go, like you said, I don't think they could afford it. Um, China, I don't think really has a very good ability to project force like the United States would. Um, and maybe I don't know their military perhaps as well as I should, but I don't think they would want to get involved with Iran. But I, I think your fear of DeSantis becoming president and then going to war with Iran um, – I think that's a very, very reasonable fear because, you know, DeSantis said from day one, like, there will be no more placating Iran. And, you know, his time in Congress, he was very hawkish on Iran. Um, that concerns me a lot. And I think you said that, like, you and Scott Horton had a little bit of a disagreement on this, but uh, I'm very, very... <laughs> a DeSantis presidency should be very worrisome for anybody who's concerned about foreign policy. And I want to give everybody who said DeSantis is a neocon one of these because I haven't heard anybody say that in the last mm. couple months. But it was clear from day one where he stood on all things foreign policy. And you let that where that is with the military industrial complex. You it's unshakable. And also, mm. too, with the, the with China and Iran, I mean China and um and Russia is that they don't have a powerful lobby like Israel does. And people underestimate the power for the Israel, Israeli lobby. And also, there is a Saudi lobby that people don't know about. Uh, they're not an actual conference like Israel does, but they have a large contingent of lawyers. And also, they uh, have a large amount of people within the oil industry. And money talks. So that's what they give. They, and plus, also, Saudi Arabia... Uh, we give more weapons to Saudi Arabia than in any uh, country on the face of the earth. They're the biggest purchaser of mil military grade weaponry. And they, you know, they basically give billions of dollars yearly to uh, people in, at the Capitol and in Congress. Um, I yeah, I would say wait. Now it's just a waiting game. I, I like you, like you just said. Uh, let's see what happens in the next election. Then this election probably will be like they always say each election is the biggest election. For the safety and security of, of everybody on the face of the earth, and we're talking about nuclear capabilities here, yeah. uh, nuclear threat, there's, there's no lie. This probably will be the most important election probably of our lifetime since the Reagan administration under the Cold War, um, at least at least since then. But um, yes, if we get the ghoul DeSantis in, uh, yeah, it's, it's like you can see the writing on the wall. Iran is next. And if that's the case, uh, you know, Syria and Lebanon, they'll get involved. And all, by default, they'll all get involved. And that's World War III. Now, whether nuclear bombs are used, I don't think so. We're not at that point yet. Um, read about the Samson option, by the way. Uh, but no, we're not at that point yet. I think the midnight clock is indeed that much closer than we have been since the, the, the Cold War. And I think it's according to the nuclear clock or the doomsday clock. We are seconds away from ultimate uh, destruction, and it's been the closest it's ever been. And it's not—it's not, it's not uh, uh, you know an extreme, you know, a very unprecedented level. It's we saw this coming, and we allowed it to happen. Right. And we need more voices out there, people like yourself, Kyle. Thank you. And we need more people in the. And we have the libertarians. There are a lot of libertarians out there. We cover the Libertarian Institute, like Connor Freeman, Scott Orton, Kyle Angelo, and we, Will Porter, Kyle, uh, um, um, uh, Kyle um, Knight, Keith Knight, stuff like that. But yes, we need more. And I don't care what people say. Oh, I don't have a big channel. Well, no, your voice is is important. No matter how big of an audience you have, because if we have one, we can have two, we can have three. And all of a sudden, now we have 10, we have 12, now we have thousands and millions. And guess what? The numbers, like Jim Morrison once said in the song Five to One, 
They got the guns, but we got the numbers. So the numbers win. We just need everybody on our side. We can't be divided. We have to be united. And I think that's what could stop the evil of this world. Yeah, absolutely. And um, for generations going forward, um, you know, I it would behoove us to kind of humble ourselves and think about, um, you know, what we're doing for the generations going forward when we just sent, you know, what is it, $130 billion to Ukraine. Sure. Um, you could equate all the money we've sent to Israel. I think it's to um, a quarter of a trillion dollars, if I remember correctly, throughout history that we've uh, sent Israel, if you adjust it for inflation, um, for the you know, for my future children, you know, what kind of world are we passing on to them when we're $34 trillion in debt and we're fighting two proxy wars, essentially, you know, one with Gaza and then one with Ukraine. And then now we're also building up around China. You know, what kind of world are we going to leave to the next generation? That's, it's humiliating because at one point we used to be the shining city on the hill where people came mm. to live a good life. But now, you know, we have oligarchs that rob the uh, treasury and then leave the rest of us to kind of deal with the rest. And it's, it's a very, very sad state of affairs, but, um, you know, kind of like you were saying voices like your own, hopefully mine and uh, some of the people in the comments as well. Um, hopefully we can all speak up and, uh, make a difference and kind of change the dialogue in a, you know, a serious way that kind of directs it more towards peace and prosperity rather than war and blood, you know? Yeah. Listen, you know, I remember when I used to be embarrassed by my voice and my face and stuff like, oh, I'm too, you know, no one's going to listen to me anyway. But it was not about you. It's about the information in your head. It's about what's here. It's about what's here. And that's the only thing that matters. And that's the one thing the United States government doesn't understand. They know about war, but they don't know about the human condition. They don't know about the heart. They don't know about empathy because they show none. And you know what? That's what separates us from them, ultimately, and from all governments around the world. And if we have enough people, united people, behind that message, you can change. We can change the world. We're not hopeless. We're not helpless. They like us to think that we are and believe it, but we're not. And as long as you have that voice inside of you and you have that fire and passion inside of you, speak out on it because your voice does matter. It does matter because your voice can lead to another person saying, I could do it too. And you become an influencer. And the thing is not to become involved with the numbers game in your head and say, hey, now I can start making money whatnot. The message is more important than anything else because Absolutely. it's now or never. And I think uh, for like you said, you know, you got kids in the future and you basically want them to live in a better future. Well, what better time than now? Absolutely. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Uh, Adam, I think it's a perfect place to kind of wrap things up. Go ahead, give your plugs to your channel. Um, it's always a blast talking to you, and I'm glad we got to cover all that stuff. Um, you know, as usual, when I talk to guys who are more knowledgeable than me on foreign policy, I always have to listen back because um, you guys are, are just so incredible. You know, between you, Kyle Anzalone, Connor Freeman, Scott Horton, Pat McFarland, Dave DeCamp, um, you know, the guys from, from the Institute and antiwar.com, all you guys are absolutely fantastic. And I know you're not a part of them but um you know i put you right up there with them because i think you're such a great source of information so go ahead give your plugs where everybody can find you and support you oh goodness gracious you call me red face uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh libertarian, look, libertarian institute the best in the country in Absolutely. my in my opinion for um, unbiased reporting about what's going on mm -hmm. i would suggest you go there first um yes adam fitzgerald i'm easy to find i'm 610 and if you can't see me visually i'm online adam fitzgerald 911 if you Google, if you just Google Adam Fitzgerald 9-11, I come right up. 
If you want to go to my Twitter, um, I have everything pinned on my top tweet, underscore Adam Fitzgerald. Go right to my page. On top is all my links of, of my shows and the Dark and Dower documents and files, all for free. And you could view them at your leisure. And, um, you know, drop me a comment or whatnot. And uh, I always try to get back as soon as possible to anybody who responds and, and comments. And um, Kyle uh, Matovic, thank you so much for having me on your show. I always like coming on here and talking with you. And um, thank you for giving me a platform. Yeah, of course. Anytime. Uh, before we go, I'll read Billy's comment. Have a good night, guys. Glad I got to hear Adam's input on everything. Very informative. I'll totally be watching Adam again. Uh, absolutely. I've known Billy since we were kids. And, uh, you know, I'm glad that I got to share, you know, kind of this whole show with him and that he stuck around to watch. With Kyle, great wealth and knowledge. Absolutely, man. Um, well, I guess without further ado, we'll wrap it there. Thank you guys so much for watching. Make sure you go follow Adam everywhere and check his stuff out. I've been listening to it all day today and I'll be listening to it again in the future and there will be plenty more conversations coming. Um, tune in tomorrow for Cognitive Vigilance with Brandy, Ryan, and Rolo Tomasi. It's going to be a really, really cool show. And uh, hopefully we'll get some crossover listeners from there to come listen to this stuff and, you know, all that's good stuff. So, um, yeah, Adam, if you have anything else, we'll wrap there. No, we're good. That's all. Thank you again, Kyle, for having me on. Of course. Thank you so much, everybody. Until next time, take care. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, Place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager. Only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.